Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer in Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Astounding Story 7, July 1930, by Various. The Forgotten Planet, by Sewell Peasley Wright. I have been asked to record plainly and without prejudice a brief history of the Forgotten Planet that this record, when completed, will be sealed in the archives of the Interplanetary Alliance and remain there, a secret and rather dreadful bit of history, is no concern of mine. I am an old man, well past the century mark, and what disposal is made of my works is of little importance to me. I grow weary of life and living, which is good. The fear of death, was lost when our scientists showed us how to live until we grew weary of life. But I am digressing, an old man's failing. The Forgotten Planet wasn't always so named. The name that once bore had been, as every child knows, stricken from the records actual and mental of the universe. It's well that evil should not be remembered. But in order that this history may be clear in the centuries to come, my records should go back to beginnings. So far as the universe is concerned, the history of the Forgotten Planet begins with the visit of the first craft ever to span the space between the worlds, the crude adventuresome Adorn, whose name as well as the names of the nine Xenians who man her occupy the highest places in the role of honor of the universe. Amy Baovi, the commander and historian of the Adorn, made brief comment on his stop at the Forgotten Planet. I shall record it in full. We came to rest upon the surface of this, the fourth of the planets visited during the first trip of the Adorn, eighteen spaces before the height of the sun. We found ourselves surrounded immediately by vast numbers of creatures very different from ourselves, and from their expressions and gestures we gathered that they were both curious and unfriendly. Careful analysis of the atmosphere proved it to be sufficiently similar to our own to make it possible for us to again stretch our legs outside the rather cramped quarters of the Adam and tread the soil of still another world. No sooner had we emerged, however, that we were angrily beset by the people of this unfriendly planet, and rather than do them injury, we retired immediately, and concluded our brief observations through our ports. The topography of this planet is similar to our own. 
save that there are no mountains, and the flora is highly colored almost without exception, and apparently quite largely parasitical in nature. The people are rather short in stature, with hairless heads and high foreheads. Instead of being round or oval, however, the heads of these people rise to a rounded ridge, which runs back from a point between and just above the eyes, nearly to the nape of the neck behind. They give evidence of a fair order of intelligence, but are suspicious and unfriendly. From the number and size of the cities we saw, the planet is evidently thickly populated. We left about sixteen spaces before the height of the sun, and continued towards the fifth and last planet before our return to Xenia. This report, quite naturally, caused other explorers in space to hesitate. There were so many friendly, eager worlds to visit. During the years that relations between the planets were being established, that unfriendly people were ignored. However, from time to time, as spaceships became perfected and more common, parties from many of the more progressive planets did call. Each of them met with the same hostile reception, and at last, shortly after the Second War of the Planets, the victorious line sent a fleet of the small but terrible dubious spheres, convoyed by four of the largest of the disintegrator ray ships, to subjugate the forgotten planet. Five great cities were destroyed, and the control city, the seat of the government, was menaced before the surly inhabitants conceded allegiance to the alliance. Parties of scientists, fabricators and workmen were then landed, and a dictator was appointed. From all the worlds of the alliance, instruments and equipment were brought to the forgotten planet. A great educational system was planned and executed. The benign and kindly influence of the Alliance made every effort to improve the conditions existing on the Forgotten Planet, and to win the friendship and allegiance of these people. For two centuries the work went on. Two centuries of bloodshed, strife, hate and disturbance. Nowhere else within the known universe was there ill-feeling. The second awful war of the planets had at last succeeded in teaching the lesson of peace. Two centuries of effort, wasted effort. It was now the end of the second century that my own story begins. Commander at the time of the supercruiser Taman, a special patrol ship of the Alliance, I wasn't at all surprised to receive orders from the Central Council to report at emergency speed. Spatial patrol work in those days, before the advent of the present decentralized system, was a succession of false starts, hurried recalls and urgent emergency orders. I obeyed at once. In the Spatial Patrol Service there is no questioning orders. The planet Earth, from which I sprang, is and always has been proud of the fact that from the very beginning her men have been picked to command the ships of the Spatial Patrol. No matter how dangerous, how forlorn and hopeless the mission given to a commander of a Spatial Patrol ship, History has never recorded that any commander has ever hesitated. 
That is why our uniform of blue and silver commands the respect that it does even in this day and age of softening and decadence, when man, but again an old man, digresses. And perhaps it's not for me to judge. I pointed the blunt nose of the Taman at Xenia, seat of the Central Council, and in four hours' Earth time, the great craft swept over the gleaming city of the Central Council and settled swiftly to the court before the mighty, columned hall of the planets. Four pages of the Council, in their white and scarlet livery, met me and conducted me instantly to a little anteroom behind the great Council chamber. There were three men awaiting me there. Three men whose faces at the time were familiar to every person in the known universe. Kellen, the oldest of the three, and the spokesman rose as I entered the room. The others did likewise, as the pages closed the heavy doors behind me. You are prompt, and that is good, thought Kellen. I welcome you. Remove now thy manner. I glanced up at him swiftly. This must surely be an important matter, that I was asked to remove my manor band. It will, of course, be understood that at the time we had but a bulky and clumsy instrument to enable us to convey and receive thought, a device consisting of heavy band of metal, in which were embedded the necessary instruments and a tiny atomic energy generator, the whole being worn as a circlet of crown upon the head. Wonderingly, I removed my manor, placed it upon the long, dark table around which the three men were standing, and bowed. Each of the three, in turn, lifted their gleaming circlets from their heads and placed them likewise upon the table before them. You wonder, said Galen, speaking, of course, in the soft and liquid universal language, which is, I understand, still disseminated in our schools as it should be. I shall explain as quickly and as briefly as possible. We have called you here on a dangerous mission, a mission that will require tact and quickness of mind as well as bravery. We have selected you have called you because we are agreed that you possesses the qualities required. Is it not so? He glanced at his two companions, and they nodded gravely, solemnly, without speaking. You are a young man, John Hanson, continued Callan, but your record in your service is one of which you can be proud. We trust you with knowledge that is so secret so precious that we must revert to speech in order to convey it. We dare not trust it, even in this protected and guarded place, to the manner's quicker but less discreet communication. He paused for a moment, frowning thoughtfully as though dreading to begin. I waited silently, and at last he spoke again. There is a world and he named a name which I shall not repeat, the name of the forgotten planet. There is a festering sore upon the body of the universe. As you know, 
For two centuries we have tried to pass on to this people an understanding of peace and friendship. I believe that nothing has been left undone. The Council and the forces behind it have done everything within their power. And now... He stopped again, and there was an expression of deepest pain written upon his wise and kindly face. The pause was for but an instant. And now, he went on firmly. It's at an end. Our work has been undone. Two centuries of effort undone. They have risen in revolt. They have killed all those sent by the alliance of which this council is the governing body and the mouthpiece. And they have sent us an ultimatum, a threat of war. What? Kellen nodded his magnificent old head gravely. I don't wonder that you start, he said heavily. War? It must not be. It cannot be. And yet, war is what they threaten. But, sir, I put in eagerly, I was young and rash in those days. Who are they to make war against a united universe? I have visited your planet, Earth, said Kellen, smiling very faintly. You have a tiny winged insect you call bee. Is it not so? Yes, the bee is a tiny thing, of little strength. A man, a little child, might crush one to death between a thumb and finger. But the bee may sting before he is crushed. And the sting may linger on for days. A painful and unpleasant thing. Is that not so? I see, sir. I replied, somewhat abashed before the tolerant, kindly wisdom of this great man. They cannot hope to wage successful war, but they may bring much suffering to others. Much suffering, nodded Callan, still gently smiling. And we are determined that this thing shall not be, not. And his face grew gray with a terrible and bitter resolve. Not if we have to bring to bear upon the dark and unwilling world the disintegrating race of every ship of the Alliance, so that the very shell of the planet shall disappear, and no life ever again shall move upon its surface. But this, and he seemed to shudder at the thought, is a terrible and ruthless thing to even contemplate. We must first try once again to point out to them the folly of their ways. It's with this mission that we would burden you, John Hanson. It's no burden, but an honor, sir, I said quietly. Youth, youth, Callan chided me gently. Foolish, yet rather glorious. Let me tell you the rest, and then we shall ask for your reply again. The news came to us by a small scout ship, attached to that unhappy world. It barely made the journey to Jeron, the nearest planet, and crashed so badly from lack of power that all save one man were killed. He luckily tore all his manner and insisted in speech that he be brought here. He was obeyed and in a dying condition was brought to this very chamber. 
Galen glanced swiftly, sadly, around the room, as though he could still visualize the scene. Every agent of the Alliance upon that hateful planet was set upon and killed, following the walking out of some gigantic and perfectly executed plan. All save the crew of this one tiny scout ship, which was spared to act as a messenger. Tell your great consul what the message these people sent to us, that he is rebellion. We don't want, nor will we tolerate your peace. We have learned now that upon other worlds than ours there are great riches. This we shall take. If there is resistance, we have a new and a terrible death to deal, a death that your great scientists will be helpless against, a horrible and irresistible death that will make desolate and devoid of intelligent life any world where we are forced to sow the seeds of ultimate disaster. We are not yet ready. If we were, we wouldn't move, for we prefer that your council have time to think about what is surely to come. If you doubt that we have the power to do what we have threatened to do, send one ship commanded by a man whose word you will trust, and we will prove to him that these are no empty words. That as nearly as I can remember it, concluded Callan, is the message. The man who brought it died almost before he had finished. That is the message. You are the man we have picked to accept their challenge. Remember, though, that there are but the four of us in this room. There are but four of us who know all these things. If you, for any reason, don't wish to accept this mission, there will be known to judge you, least of all any one of us who know best of all the perils. You say, sir, I said quietly, although my heart was pounding in my throat and roaring in my ears, that there would be none to judge me. Sir, there would be myself. There could be no more merciless judge. I am honored that I have been selected for this task, and I accept the responsibility willingly, gladly. When is it your wish that we should start? The three presiding members of the council glanced at each other, faintly smiling, as though they would say, as Kellen had said a short time before, Youth! Youth! Yet I believe they were glad and somewhat proud that I had replied as I did. You may start, said Kellen, as soon as you can complete the necessary preparations. Detailed instructions will be given you later. He bowed to me, and the others did likewise. Then Kellen picked up his manner and adjusted it. The interview was over. What do you make it? I asked the observer. He glanced up from his instrument. Jaron, sir. Three degrees to port. Elevation between five and six degrees. Approximate only, of course, sir. Good enough. Please ask Mr. Barry to hold to his present course. We shall not stop at Jaron. The observer glanced at me curiously, but he was too well disciplined to hesitate or ask questions. Yes, sir, he said crisply and spoke into the microphone beside him. None of us wore manners when on duty, for several reasons. 
Our instruments were not nearly as perfect as those in use today, and verbal orders were clearer and carried more authority than mental instructions. The delicate and powerful electrical and atomic mechanism of our ship interfered with the functioning of the mirrors, and at the time the old habit of speech was far more firmly entrenched due to hereditary influence than it is now. I nodded to the man and made my way to my own quarters. I wished most heartily that I could talk over my plans with someone, but this had been expressly forbidden. I realize that you trust your men, and more particularly your officers. Kellen had told me during the course of his parting conversation with me. I trust them also. Yet we must remember that the peace of mind of the universe is concerned. If news, even a rumor, of this threatened disaster should become known, it's impossible to predict the disturbance it might create. Say nothing to anyone. It's your problem. You alone should leave the ship when you land. You alone shall hear or see the evidence they have to present, and you alone shall bring word of it to us. That is the wish of the Consul. Then it is my wish. I had said, and so it had been settled. Aft in the crew's quarters a gong sounded sharply. The signal for changing watches and the beginning of a sleep period. I glanced at the remote control dials that glowed behind their glass panel on one side of my room. From the registered attraction of Jaron, at our present speed we should be passing her within, according to Earth time, about two hours. That meant that their outer patrols might be seeking our business and I touched Barry's attention button and spoke into the microphone beside my bunk. Mr. Barry, I am turning in for a little sleep. Before you turn over the watch to idle, will you see that the nose rays are set for the special patrol code signal for this error? We shall be close to Jaron shortly. Yes, sir. Any other orders? No. Keep her on her present course. I shall take the watch from Mr. Idle. Since there had been changes since those days, and will undoubtedly be others in the future, it might be well to make clear in a document such as this, that at this period all ships of the Special Patrol Service identified themselves by means of invisible rays flashed in certain sequences from the two nose or forward projectors. These code signals were changed every hour, a period of time arbitrarily set by the Council, about eighteen days, as time is measured on Earth, and divided into ten periods, as at present known as anorans. These were further divided into anorans, thus giving us a time reckoning system for use in space, corresponding roughly to the months, days, and hours of the earth. I retired, but not to sleep. Sleep wouldn't come. I knew, of course, that if curious outer patrol ships from Jaron did investigate us, they would be able to detect our invisible ray call signal, and thus satisfy themselves that we were on the Consul's business. 
there would be no difficulty on that score. But what I should do after landing upon the rebellious sphere, I hadn't the slightest idea. Be stone, indifferent to their threats. Galen had counseled me. But do everything within your power to make them see the folly of their attitude. Don't threaten them, for they are solely people, and you might precipitate matters. Swallow your pride if you must. Remember that yours is a gigantic responsibility, and upon the information you bring us may depend the salvation of millions. I am convinced that they are not. You have a word in your language that fits exactly. Not pretending. What is the word? Bluffing. I had supplied in English, smiling. Right. Bluffing. It's a very descriptive word. I'm sure they are not bluffing. I was sure of it also. They knew the power of the Alliance. They had been made to feel it more than once. A bluff would have been a foolish thing. And these people were not fools. In some lines of research they were extraordinarily brilliant. But what could their new terrible weapon be? Race we had. At least half a dozen rays of destruction. The terrible dehydrating ray of the dubious spheres. The disintegrated ray that dated back before Amber Ovi and his first voyage into space. The concentrated ultraviolet ray that struck men down in fiery torment. No, it could hardly be a new ray that was their boasted weapon. What then? Electricity had even then been exhausted of its possibilities. Atomic energy had been released, harnessed and directed. Yet it would take fabulous time and expense to make these machines of destruction do what they claimed they would do. Still pondering the problem, I did fall at last into a fitful travesty of sleep. I was glad when the soft clamor of the bell aft announced the next change of watch. I rose, cleared the cobwebs from my brain with an icy shower, and made my way directly to the navigating room. Everything tidy, sir, said Idol, my second officer, and a Zinian. He was thin and very dark, like all Zinians, and had the high, effeminate voice of that people. But he was cool and fearless, and had the uncanny celebration of his kind. I trusted him as completely as I trusted Barry, my first officer, who, like myself, was a native of Earth. Will you take over? Yes, I nodded, glancing at the twin charts beneath the ground glass top of the control table. Get what sleep you can the next few hours. Presently I shall want every man on duty and at his station. He glanced at me curiously, as the observer had done, but saluted and left with only a brief, Yes, sir. I returned this salute and turned my attention again to the charts. The navigating room of an interplanetary ship is without doubt unfamiliar ground to most, so it might be well for me to say that such ships have, for the most part, twin charts, showing progress in two dimensions, to use land terms, lateral and vertical. 
These charts are really no more than large sheets of ground glass, ruled in both directions with fine black lines, representing all relatively close heavenly bodies by green lights of varying sizes. The ship itself is represented by a red spark, and the whole is, of course, entirely automatic in action, the instruments comprising the chart being operated by super-radio reflexes. Jaron, the chart showed me at a glance, was now far behind. Almost directly above, it's necessary to resort to these unscientific terms to make my meaning clear. Was the tiny world Elon, home of the friendly but impossibly dull-winged people, the only ones in the known universe? I was there but once, and found them almost laughably like our common dragonflies on Earth. Dragonflies that grow some seven feet long and with gauzy wings of amazing strength. Directly ahead on both charts was a brilliantly glowing sphere of green, our destination. I made some rapid mental calculations studying the few fine black lines between the red spark that was our ship and the nearest edge of the great green sphere. I glanced at our speed indicator and the attraction mirror. The little red slide that moved around the rim of the attraction meter was squarely at the top, showing that the attraction was from straight ahead. The great black hand was nearly a third of the way around the face. We were very close. Two hours would bring us into the atmospheric envelope. In less than two hours and a half, we would be in the control city of what is now called the Forgotten Planet. I glanced forward, through the thick glass partitions, into the operating room. Three men stood there, watching intently. They, too, were wondering why we visited the unfriendly world. The planet itself loomed up straight ahead, a great half-circle, its curved rim sharp and bright against the empty blackness of space, the cord wrecked and blurred. In two hours, I turned away and began a restless pacing. An hour went by, an hour and a half. I pressed the attention button to the operating room and gave orders to reduce our speed by half. We were very close to the outer fringe of the atmospheric envelope. Then, keeping my eye on the big surface temperature gauge with its stubby red hand, I resumed my nervous pacing. Slowly the thick red head of the surface temperature gauge began to move slowly and then more rapidly until the eyes could catch its creeping. Reduced to atmospheric speed, I ordered curtly and glanced down through a side port at one end of the long navigating room. We were at the moment directly above the twilight belt. To my right, as I looked down, I could see a portion of the glistening Antarctic ice cap. Here and there were the great flat lakes, almost seas of the planet. Our geographies of the universe today don't show the topography of the forgotten planet. I might say, therefore, that the entire sphere was land area, with numerous great lakes embedded in its surface, together with many broad, very crooked rivers. 
As Amy Baovi had reported, there were no mountains and no highland. Altitude constant, I ordered. Port three degrees. Stand by for further orders. The earth seemed to whirl slowly beneath us. Great cities drifted astern, and I compared the scene below me with the great maps I took from our chart case. The control city should be just beyond the visible rim, well in the daylight area. Port five degrees. I sat and pressed the attention button to Barry's quarters. Mr. Barry, please call all men to quarters, including the off-duty watch, and then report to the navigating room. Mr. Idol will be under my direct orders. We shall descend within the next few minutes. Very well, sir. I press the attention button to Idol's room. Mr. Idol, please pick ten of your best men and have them report at the forward exit. Await me with the men at the place. I shall be with you as soon as I turn the command over to Mr. Barry. We are descending immediately. Right, sir, said Idle. I turned from the microphone to find that Barry had just entered the navigating room. We will descend into the great court of the control city, Mr. Barry, I said. I have a mission here. I am sorry, but these are the only instructions I can leave you. I don't know how long I shall be gone from the ship, but if you don't return within three hours, depart without me and report directly to Kellen of the Council, to him and no other. Tell him, verbally, what took place. Should there be any concerted action against the Taemon, use your own judgment as to the action to be taken, remembering that the safety of the ship and its crew and the report of the Council are infinitely more important than my personal welfare. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Too damned clear. I smiled and shook my head. Don't worry, I said lightly. I'll be back well within the appointed time. I hope so, but there is something wrong as hell here. I'm talking now as man to man, not to my commanding officer. I've been watching below and I have seen at least two spots where large numbers of our ships have been destroyed. The remaining ships bear their own damned emblem where the crest of the alliance should be, and was. What does it mean? It means, I said slowly, that I shall have to rely upon every man and officer to forget himself and myself, and obey orders without hesitation and without flinching. The orders are not mine, but direct from the Council itself. I held out my hand to him. An ancient earth gesture of greeting, goodwill and farewell, and he shook it vigorously. God go with you, he said softly, and with a little nod of thanks I turned and quickly left the room. End of section 15 Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. 
join me and my fellow guide John Chadwick as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash InnsmouthBC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Radio. Radio.